Good morning. Today's scriptures reading is Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals of the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing with pain and you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it. All the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to the guard, the way of the tree of life. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, I wanted to start just by uh, thanking all of you uh, for two Sundays ago. Uh, there was a surprise, if you weren't here, uh, two Sundays ago there was a surprise party for me after the service. Uh, I turned 40 this month. Uh, so the sermons are really wise now. They just overnight. But uh, there was a, a surprise celebration for me, and many of you uh, really participated and, and just made that wonderful for me. You know, Laura and I, we don't have 
family that live nearby. Um, fortunately, Laura's mom was able to come up here this weekend. There, our kids are sick, so they're with the kids. But, but generally speaking, our, our family lives uh, quite a ways away. The closest family is my sister who lives in Philadelphia, two and a half hour drive. And when you have a kid, kids that are, are three and two or four and three, whatever they are now, uh, they, it might as well be China because a two and a half hour drive feels like you're flying to China, if you know what I mean. So we don't really have family around. And I was reminded two Sundays ago of what is at the heart of the gospel, that in Christ Jesus, those who are not family members become family. That in Christ Jesus, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, uh, Wyomingite or Marylander, Hillsdalian or Rivervalian, right? We are, we are all family, and it really felt that way two weeks ago, so I wanted to thank you for that. Uh, a special thanks to Randy, who's not uh, here this Sunday. Randy preached uh, that week, which gave my family the opportunity to take a little bit of rest. We went upstate, uh, to upstate New York for several days, and it was an unbelievably momentous occasion in the life of the Hanley family. Uh, we went hiking on my birthday, my 40th birthday, and we, we did our first legitimate family hike. And thank you. This was big for me. This was big for me. And it drew me back. I remember a conversation I had with JD about two years ago when my kids were two and one, and I was moaning about how we just can't ever leave the house. It's all changing diapers and being at home and all this. And he said to me, he says, oh, you're in the tunnel. Right now, you're in the tunnel, Kevin. Oh, yeah, it's just darkness. It's just darkness. He said, but give us a, you know, give it a few years, and you'll start to come out of the tunnel. You'll be able to do things. And so when we were in upstate New York, we came out of the tunnel. Now, my understanding is that when your kids become teenagers, you go right back into the tunnel. It gets really, really dark. But anyways, we'll take the light while we can. And we got to go hiking and all of this. And as we climbed to the top of this, this one mountain, and I remember looking around, looking at my beautiful family, looking at the, the landscape, looking around and saying to myself, we live in a good world. We live in an absolutely beautiful, wonderful world. Isn't it true? Don't we live in an absolutely beautiful and wonderful world? Today we are continuing in our series uh, called The Story. And the basic idea, basic central thesis of this whole series is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to understand what kind of a book the Bible is first. So if you really want to be able to get the full meaning out of, out of any sort of text. And so we've seen that the Bible is not primarily a book of philosophical wisdom. Uh, the Bible is not primarily a, an instruction manual for life. Uh, it's not organized very well as a manual, as you probably have noticed. Now, if you're looking for timeless wisdom and you're looking for instructions for life, the Bible is exactly the place that you want to go. But you, to really get the fullness of, uh, meaning, of the meaning of any given passage, you've got to see how it fits into the book as a whole. And what we need to understand is that the book as itself primarily is a story. It's a story. And if you want to understand any passage of the Bible uh, to its fullest, you've got to see how it fits into that story. And as we're seeing, because this is the story, not just any story, but the story of humanity, of the world, because it is the story, if you want to understand any page in the story of your own life, you've got to see how it fits into this story. And so that's what we're doing. We're going through this story. In the last, uh, we took a little bit of a break, but we started looking for several weeks at creation. The story starts with creation. 
And what we saw is that God created the world and he created it good, very good. And he created humanity as sort of the, uh, the crown jewel uh, of his creation. And, and he allowed us to become a part of the creative process. The process of taking non-order and, and, and bringing, it, bringing order out of non-order and bringing greater goodness and beauty into the world. And so we saw the, the goodness of family and, and the goodness of work that we were created to work and to use our hands and to, and to bring even greater good and beauty into this world. So what we saw is that God created this world and he created it good. And isn't this a beautiful and great good world? I mean, from the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plain of Texas, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, from New York to L.A. I mean, is it not true that God has blessed the USA? Is it not true that this is an amazingly good and wonderful place? And, and I'm, of course, as an American citizen, I'm definitely biased. I think America is the greatest place in the world. But certainly, if you go beyond the borders of America, you find that there is beauty throughout the world. Laura and I are, are partial to Italy, the beauty of the, the hills in, in the Chianti region, not to mention the food in the Chianti region. It's, it's beautiful, and it's not just, it's not just the, the, the scenery and the landscapes of our world, but the cities. Cities are good. There's so much good and beauty in the cities. You know, you know people travel from all around the world to go see the Grand Canyon and all of that to see the beauty of God's creation. But people also come to New York City to see the goodness and the beauty of, of the city that has been cultivated by people who bear the image of God, has been cultivated by, by people who have brought order and beauty through the architecture, through education, through, through music, through art. Through, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, wonderful place. Now, I suspect that for many of us, as we hear me describing this, we resonate with this on one level. But there is also an uneasiness as well. We resonate with this. Yeah, I see beauty around us in, in the people that I know. I see goodness and beauty and in relationships and marriages and in all of this. I, I see goodness and, and beauty in the world around us. But, but Kevin... That's not the whole story. And you're right. (laughs) That's not the whole story. We read in Genesis 1 and 2 about God creating a good and beautiful place, but it's only the first two chapters of the Bible. And then in Genesis 3, it turns. And Genesis 3 through 11 especially, uh, there is a stark contrast between Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3 through 11. It starts off good, but then from 3 on, it just unravels. The question is why? Why does it unravel? And what we discover in this passage here is that it unravels because creation rebels against its creator. Creation rebels against God. Now, we have seen that Adam represents humanity. The word Adam, the Hebrew word Adam, is the same word for person or man. It's exactly the same word in Hebrew. 
Adam means man, means humanity. So he represents humanity. But the word Adam is also closely related to the word Adama, which we also find in this passage and talks about, about man coming and being made from the ground. Adama means ground. And so it seems that, that, that Adam represents humanity, but also in a sense he represents all of creation. Adam represents sort of the, the, the crown jewel of creation, represents creation. And so when Adam falls, all of creation falls. You, you might say that at this point in the narrative, this is the point where creation gets to the point uh, in, in their creation in which they're able now to rebel against God. Uh, this is, you might say, the first moment in which creation has sort of the, the, the conscious ability to rebel against, against God. So um, um, if you think about what it means for Adam to be made in the image of God, and we've seen this. We saw that a central piece of what it means for Adam to be made in the image of God is that he's been given a vocational calling. Humanity has been given a vocational calling to carry on the work of bringing order and beauty to all of creation. And so that's part of, of what it means to be unique and to be special and different from the rest of creation. But, of course, what is closely related to that is the uniqueness in which uh, Adam, humanity, can relate to God, can have a personal relationship with God, can conceptually be aware of a personal and living God. I, I think whatever you may think about the mental capabilities of animals, I think we can at least say that it is empirically evident uh, that, that humans have this unique ability to have this personal relationship with God. You know, despite what a, a friend of mine whom I dog, I, I dog sat for her, watched her dog, and she insisted that the dog listen to Christian music, um, I just don't think that mattered. Because there's a, there's a uniqueness in which we are made. We have a unique ability to be able to relate to God, a sort of conceptual awareness of God. And then also what is closely related to, to this, God gives us this command because humanity has the ability to choose whether or not to follow him or not. Humanity has, is, 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 is at this place of responsibility. You might say that the creation has now gotten to this point where it, it can become responsible for its its actions. Uh, to put it this way, um, well, you, you, you might say, look at it, look at it this way. Um, you might say that creation has reached the age of accountability. Sort of as an analogy, think about this. Creation has reached the age of accountability. When we think of the age of accountability for an individual human being, what we acknowledge is that when a three-year-old screams and cries and asks for milk at three in the morning, that is not a transgression. But if I scream and cry for milk at three in the morning, I'm expected to know better than that. There's a, an element of responsibility there. And of course, what we discover is that this capability and this ability to make these decisions and choices is something that emerges over time. We see it emerging in an individual human being over time. I see it present growing in my own children. They, they have a sense of that awareness that they didn't have a year ago, but they don't have that same sense of awareness that an adult has. And so, so this is something that emerges. And then, and then all cultures at some point draw a line. It's not always the same. Different cultures have, 
because you can't, it's going to be different for each individual, truthfully. But so we, we still try to draw some sort of a line. And in our country, of course, the final age at this point is 18, right? That's when you're sort of seen as truly being responsible. And the point here isn't to try to determine where that age really is, but simply to highlight the fact that there, it emerges this point where now you are responsible. And so what you might say is an analogy is that creation has now, now it has emerged this responsibility. So, so days one through six, days one and two are like creation in its infancy, right? And then with the creation of humanity, You see, now it's reached this ability to choose and this ability to rebel. There's a responsibility to it. And it's precisely this responsibility, this ability to make this choice, is why God does not let them play the blame game. This is the whole point. God doesn't let them play the blame game because they're at that point now where they are responsible for their actions. You've got you to love what happens in this. In this it, it, there's almost sort of a comic value here, the way in which it's presented. It's tragic and yet comic at the same time when God comes into the garden and starts talking to him. And if I could paraphrase this uh, using sort of the, the style of Jimmy Buffett, uh, it would say something like this. Adam claims that there's a woman to blame. Eve claims that there's a snake to blame, but God says, no, it's your own dang fault. You can't play the blame game because, you see, and this is important, when we play the blame game, listen to this, when we blame others for our actions, we are denying our very humanity. We're denying our humanity. We're we're denying this unique responsibility that we have in saying we're really not that much different than the rest of creation. We're, we're, we're really just things that are just kind of going through life and, and what makes us make our decisions is forces that have nothing to do with us that are out of our control, really just a, really just a thing when we pass the blame. <coughs> I was noticing, uh, I found a, a series of articles about a, a rock-throwing rock incidents that have been taking place outside of Austin, Texas on uh, Interstate 35. And apparently since 2014, there have been over 80 reported cases of people throwing rocks at cars and hitting, hitting cars, causing all kinds of damage. Um, I'm not really sure what kind of accidents have been called, but over 80 since 2014 of, of rocks being thrown at cars. And what's interesting is if you look into this and you in, read the various articles, one of the things that you discover is that in none of the cases, in all 80, none of the cases, not in one place, do they blame the rocks. Now what's? They never blame the rocks, even though the rocks are the ones doing the damage, right? I mean, the rocks are the ones breaking the windshields. And so what you find is that when the police officers go up and they they take the rocks, you know, off the windshield and and they question the rocks, and they say, why did you smash this windshield? Do you know what the rocks have been saying in all these cases? They've been saying, hey, it wasn't my fault. Some guy made me do it. Some guy threw me. He just picked me up and threw me into the windshield. And the cops are buying it. They're letting these rocks off. There isn't one rock that has been arrested. Why? Because a rock is a thing. A rock's a thing. A rock has no 
choice on where it goes and what it does in its life, where it ends up, it's all dependent on forces external to itself. And when we play the blame game, we're saying, I'm not any different than a rock. Just external forces. This caused me to do this. This made me do this. You know, actually, I mean, to kind of speculate here, a little midrashic speculation, as it's called. Uh, we don't know this for sure, but but uh, if you think about it, my guess is uh, my guess is that Adam and Eve were not the first creatures to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not the first creatures. Now, this is just speculation. <clears throat> my guess is that if Eden is anything like New Jersey, the deer got there first. <laughs> right? I mean, actually, if Eden was was like New Jersey, uh, the fall never would have happened because by the time they got there, there wouldn't have been any fruit to eat. Right? So anyway. So, so the, 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 I'm guessing the deer probably ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil first. Well, how come God didn't, you know, come on? Why didn't the fall happen when the deer ate them? Why? Because, you see, deer have a, a greater sense of self-awareness than, say, a rock does. But it's not the same degree as a human being. Deer just operate simply on the basis of their urges. But human beings, there's... This, this, this some, there's a real responsibility here. And when we pass the blame, we're denying that and saying, I'm just a piece of shit. So they rebel. Humanity rebels. Creation rebels against God. Of course, why? Why do they rebel? Well, if you've been following this carefully, not to get really philosophical here for a moment, but even in asking that question is to deny uh, the very, our very humanity. It's to look for that explanation that would really just make us a thing. So in a sense, you can't really even ask the question. The question itself already assumes that we don't have this sort of... Anyway, that's getting a little bit, little bit deep here. Actually, if you want to read C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, he explains this incredibly well. But we can still ask the question, not as an ultimate question, but still sort of asking, okay, well, what was the motivation? Um, A motivation does not an action make, but it certainly is a big part of the story. So what is the motivation here? And it seems that the motivation that emerges from this is simply this. Doubt. They don't trust. Satan tricks them into not trusting God. Look what happens here. You know, Eve says to to the serpent, uh, God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. No, 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 he says. You will surely not die. can't trust God. No, no, no. If you, if, you eat, if you eat from that, your eyes will be opened and, and then you will, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, God is holding you back. Don't trust God. He's holding you back. You've got to take matters into your own hands. You, you've got to take control of the situation because you can't trust God. The very essence of sin is when we don't trust God and we feel we've got to take control, take matters into our own hands. 
So humanity, creation rebels against the creator. And what happens? Everything unravels. Everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. Uh, in fact, what's interesting is that things, things fall apart that, that don't even seem to be of a spiritual or moral nature, you know? Like, like the, uh, now, you know, having a child is more painful. Uh, and, and work, you know, the, the ground doesn't produce, like it shouldn't, of course, you know, why, why are these two things highlighted? Well, if you think about it, it, it corresponds to what we saw about what humanity was created for. We were created for, to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate the earth. This was what it meant to be made in the image of God. This was the vision and calling of humanity. And so it's talking about the fall in reference to those are saying that's just going to be way more difficult now. But, but notice that, that it's things that the childbearing is harder and, and the ground doesn't produce as much. And it seems kind of strange uh, it doesn't seem to be of any sort of spiritual or moral nature, and it seems weird until you remember what we discovered, and that is that Adam doesn't just represent humanity. He represents all of creation. All of creation is, is, is somehow mysteriously affected by this because Adam represents all of creation. And so, and so now, as, as John Walton puts it... Uh, Old Testament scholar says that, that now a third category has been introduced to the, the situation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we saw that there was non-order and order. And, and it starts really with non-order. And the whole creative process is God bringing order out of non-order. Right? That, that's what we saw. And, and we saw that, that even in the goodness of creation, he doesn't get rid of all of the non-order. Uh, we, we see that in, in the fact that the, the sea, the ocean is present because the sea and the ocean in that culture was also had a symbolic nature to it in terms of that was the place out of which uh, evil and chaos, chaos would sort of come out of. And so that isn't done away of actually in the book of Revelation when it says the sea will be no more. See, then it's saying it's perfect now. Now everything is perfectly ordered. But even in the goodness of creation, there's... There's sort of non-order, uh, non-order, and humanity is is there to help uh, to help bring order out of non-order. So that's there, um, but now there's a new category: disorder, disorder, and and disorder and non-order and and order kind of all get tangled together, which is why our world is so complicated. There's order. There's non-order. There's disorder. So everything, everything unravels. And not only do we see that we don't trust God, but we don't trust one another either. In verse uh, 16b, talking to Eve, says, Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The majority of scholars agree where it says your desire will be for your husband. It's, it's really talking about a desire to rule over your husband. And we see that if we looked in chapter 4, we'd see that the same language is used of sin, that sin desires to have you. You shouldn't be mastered by sin. It's like sin's trying to master you. And so it's the same language here 
it's saying that the woman is looking to master, to, to rule over her husband, right? And so what's happening? She, she doesn't trust God. So she doesn't trust anybody else. And so, so now she's got to take control of her life. And then, then the husband, it's, gonna, it's, it's back and forth. We don't trust God. We don't trust each other. And so now there just comes this struggle. And then most crucially, shame. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. This isn't just talking about nudity, it's, it's talking about shame. And what they're discovering here is because they, they go and they, right, they try to cover themselves. They try to cover themselves, but then later, as we'll see, God comes and, and covers them because only God can take away your shame. Only God can. That when your worth and your value is found in something other than God, it inevitably leads to shame and insecurity. Right? It leads to defensiveness and excuses and all those things that we talked about last week, right? We, we try to pretend that we're awesome, try to show everybody that we're awesome, but something deep down inside knows we're not awesome because, because ultimately awesomeness can't come from anything we do. Our awesomeness, our righteousness, our worth, and our value can only come from God. And when you run away from God, you experience shame and insecurity. So this is the story. This is the story. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of the world. And and my guess is that that you're not having a whole lot of problems questioning that. I mean, you, you might have some questions here and there about specific things, but my suspicion is that you're not really questioning. Let's see, is this... Questioning this basic premise that this is what the world is like, that this is the story. And the reason why you're not questioning this is because when you look into your own life, you realize this isn't just the story of Adam and Eve. This is my story. This is my story. And actually, the more that I come to realize that this is everyone's story, we see that this is the story story because we see that it is our story, it's your story, and it's my story. I mean, isn't it true? Isn't, isn't this your story? I mean, let's, let's, let's look at relationships. Let's look at marriages here for a moment. You know, I, I think that we, we have this sense. You see, there, there's something in us that, that longs and, and sees, longs for and sees that we were created uh, we were created for a, a, a Genesis 2.23 kind of a marriage. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There's something in us that sees that we were made for that, that we were made for this deep sense of unity between us and, 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 and our spouse to, and to work together as a team cultivating and working, and, and, and we, we see that like there's something in us that sees that that's, that's what we were made for, is this, this Genesis 2, 23 kind of, 
kind of relationship, and yet the reality is, is most of us realize our marriage is really more like a Genesis 3.16b kind of marriage. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. There, there, there is a struggle in our relationships. I, I think most of us, you know, we, we see that we were created, uh, we were created to work with our hands. We were created to, to bring beauty and order into this world through the various ways in, in which we were gifted. That, that the idea, as I said a few weeks ago, that paradise is not your dream vacation, it's your dream job. That There's something that resonates with that because is it not true that some of the greatest joy you ever find is when you do something well, whether it's working in the home or, or volunteer work or in your, your job job and, and things go well, that there's, there's a joy that you get out of that that is hard to find anywhere else. And so we have that sense that I was made to create and to bring order and to do, I was made for, for this, but boy, how many days do you go to work and you come back? And you're like, it was just thorns and thistles all day long. I mean, I went to work, and I, I mean, I don't even know, I don't even, it's like an entire day just vanished from my life. No fruit came out of that. Now, we see that this is the story because it's your story, and it's my story. Isn't it true that we find ourselves doubting God? Maybe, maybe you haven't gotten to the point where at an intellectual level you start actually doubting, but sort of functionally, daily, you don't trust him to provide. You feel, I've got to take, take matters into my own hands. Got to take control of the situation. How often do we find ourselves doubting God? This is the story because we see that it's my story, it's your story. And how many of us find ourselves struggling insecurity and shame and pride. How many of us spend so much of our lives trying to cover up, cover up that sense of inadequacy? I don't think I have to convince you that this is the story because we see that it's your story and it's my story. So the question is, what do we do? Is there any hope? Well, here's where we realize that this also isn't the whole story. This isn't the whole story. And we see glimmers of where the story is going already emerging in this passage. We see three little signs of hope already beginning to emerge in this passage. First of all, we see God already pursuing them. We see this when God comes into the garden. See if I can find, it says here, then The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Now, we need to just take a moment here and, uh, and, and just for a moment here talk about the fact that we are not intended to take 
every detail in this story literally. Uh, that, and just to kind of give you an example of where it would just get weird if you, if you took this literally. For, for example, if somebody were to come up to me and say, um, so is it before the fall, snakes had legs, and then after the fall, they, they didn't have legs? Is that right? So then you go and you look into the fossil record to see the snakes didn't have legs, and, and now they had legs, now they don't have legs. I don't think this is talking about the anatomy of a snake. I don't think that's what this is talking about. It. And one of the reasons why we need to see that is because it, would get, it gets a little bit weird. Even, in, even in when it talks about the snake, right? You will, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, look, I'm not a reptileologist or whatever they're called, but I don't think snakes actually eat dust. I think they eat insects and bugs and stuff, right? This is, what is this? This is a metaphorical way of saying that Satan has been humbled. The serpent represents Satan. He said, you have been humbled. You have been brought down. You have been, you have been lowered. That's, that's what this is. That's what this is getting at. So we, we, we're not intended to take every detail, uh, every detail, literally. And, and look, I mean, let me give you a modern example of, of something like this. Uh, and, and one of the problems is that, is that if, you, if you don't take every detail literally, then some people think then you don't take it as historical. And those are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And I'll give you an example, a modern example of this. Suppose I said to you, hey, did you see a week and a half ago, in the, I think it was a week and a half ago, in the Olympics, uh, the 1,500-meter final uh, women's freestyle, did you see that? And they're like, yeah, what happened? I said, oh, my goodness, uh, Katie Ledecky killed everybody. Now, I hope you don't think I mean that she drowned everybody, Right? Yeah, I hope you know I'm, I'm using a metaphor there, but I hope you don't think, well, then if he's using a metaphor, then does he think the race didn't happen? Of course not. No, it's a metaphorical way of referring to something historical. So we need to understand that this, this passage is certainly intended to be taken historically. In fact, the, the whole burden of this series is to say that this is the story. This is the story into which all stories, all historical stories fit into, but that doesn't mean that the telling of this story isn't necessarily going to use metaphor and all kinds of different things to explain what historically took place. That was a long aside to to get to this simple fact. It's not like God doesn't know where they are. He's in the garden. Where are you? Does God not? I thought he was omniscient. God doesn't know where they are. What's going on? When, when God says, where are you? It's really more like, what planet are you on? It's more like, it's more like, what are you doing? And, and not like, what are you doing? Like, I don't know what you're doing, right? But I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I know what you're doing, and You see, we, we see this little glimmer here that God's already, already coming towards them, though they have hidden from him. Little seed of hope, little seed of grace. It's the first sign of hope. Secondly, they open their eyes 
When they realize they're naked, they try to cover themselves. And then we discover that, that God covers them. This is later on in the chapter. God covers them, uh, covers them up with clothing. And so this is already hinting at the fact that God desires to cover their shame. Foreshadowing what is to come. And then finally, in verse 15, talking to Eve, and I will put enmity here, or excuse me, talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Here, talking about Eve's offspring, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He's saying there will be a struggle, Satan, between you and man. You're going to attack, but he is going to crush your head. That through Eve's line, the defeat of Satan is going to come. And this just begins to hint at the story, which is going to begin to unfold in the pages, further pages of Genesis, where we find Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, who becomes Israel, and it's through his line. These, these are God's people called by God, beginning with Abraham, to be agents of renewal in this world. That God will bless them so that they can bless the world and they can begin to undo what has taken place with Adam. And that that emerges from that, this messianic hope. And and I'm, I'm telescoping here. I'm bringing this all together. This is what we're going to unpack as we move through this series. But this messianic hope comes. And where does it ultimately end? In Jesus the Messiah. Turn with me in closing to Romans chapter 5. And in the book of Romans, the first couple chapters, Paul really just talks about the state of the world, state of the universe, whatever. And basically says it's not good. (laughs) And, And talks about how our rebellion against creation has led to, excuse me, the rebellion of creation against the creator has led to all kinds of strife and, and, and enmity between exactly what, what, what God says will happen. And so first couple of chapters really kind of talk about this. And then in Romans 5, Paul goes back to the source. He says, okay, well, where did this all start? What is this all about? And so here in Romans 5, he goes back to Adam. And that's what he's talking about here, Romans 5. Beginning in verse 17 is where we'll begin. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of the righteous reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Jesus Christ, my Lord. Friends, the heart of the Christian faith is that in the garden, 
We hid from our father and were banished from his presence. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by the father on our behalf that we might enter into his presence. In the garden, we gave up our innocence and our shame was exposed. On the cross, Jesus was stripped of his innocence that we might be dignified. In the garden, our doubt led to death. On the cross, Jesus' faithfulness led to life. The heart of the Christian faith is that by nature, the story of Adam is our story. But when we surrender ourselves at the foot of the cross, Jesus' story becomes ours. Dear God, we praise you for your abundant grace. As we see that in this story here, Lord, we see the reality of the verse that says that your anger lasts a moment, but your favor lasts a life. God, so quickly already, you show us your grace. God, I pray that that each and every one of us would see that you and you alone are our hope. And that there is great purpose You desire to to save us from our insecurity, from our pride. God, you desire to save us and to rescue us, not just from our own sin, but from the sin of others that has hindered us and held us back. God, you desire to rescue us from all of that, that we may be in your presence and that we may begin to live out the calling with which we were originally given. God, I pray we wouldn't be limited in what we do by our attempts to establish our own worth and righteousness. God, may we know that in you, we are whole. We have nothing to hide. We have no shame. And in that, may we be free to live, to follow you wherever you lead. God, to carry on the work that you called us to do. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.